Heavenly Father, we trust that this is no random passage that you have caused us to turn to this morning. Even though we're in a series, we trust your spirit and your providence that you have not only chosen this very passage for us, but you have included in this very room the very people whom you wish to hear it. We sit under your word this morning with diligence, eager to hear the words of our Savior and the words of eternal life. So we pray that you would speak to us and give us open ears and hearts to receive your word and let it grow into fruit that pleases you, our King. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, the Apostle Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. My sermon title for this morning, A New and Holy Life, might sound familiar to you. It, it should certainly sound familiar to the elders here at Cross Point because I've taken that phrase directly out of paragraph 7 of Cross Point's church covenant, which the elders read before every meeting monthly and which we as members have just recently begun to read every quarter before our quarterly members meeting. The last sentence of that paragraph reads, We will seek by divine aid to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation or responsibility now to live a new and holy life. So did you hear that? The Christian life is not a laissez-faire lifestyle. We have a special responsibility as Christians to live as changed people. And that is exactly what Paul, the Apostle Paul, was telling us in the passage we just read this morning. He's reminding us that we who have learned Christ have a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. We who have learned Christ have a special obligation now to live a new and holy life. I wonder if you've seen on the internet the hilarious tragedy of Ece Omo. The Ece Omo was, was a beautiful 1930 mural of Jesus painted on the wall of the historic Sanctuary of Mercy in Borja, Spain, a town of less than 5,000 people. The mural had a very simplistic 
beauty to it. It was a picture of Christ robed in our humanity and wearing a crown of thorns on his head, looking contemplatively to God, to the heavens. Although the mural never achieved any sort of fame, I mean, nevertheless, the people of the church and the people of the village had come to recognize it and admire it as something that was a token of, of their village and their spirituality. But in August 2012, <laughs> the Ece Omo became internationally famous almost overnight when an elderly parishioner, Cecilia Jimenez, attempted to restore it, to restore it herself. Uh, the results were totally disastrous. You'll simply have to see it to believe it. And I know we have iPhones. I trust you won't do that right now, but maybe after church. You have to see it to believe it. But suffice to say that what, what was once a solemn picture of our Lord, robed in humanity, now looks like an extremely hairy monkey wearing an oversized tunic. Well, the moral of the really silly story is that all of us are in need of serious repair. And we can't repair ourselves. If we try, we'll just make things worse. God must repair us, and God alone. And when God repairs us, when he has begun the process of repairing us, he expects us to live like new and repaired people. In fact, St. Athanasius in the 4th century described God's redemption of us in Christ almost entirely in terms of the recovery of a valuable painting. In the beginning, God created or painted us in his image. When we rebelled against him, the picture became ruined or tarnished. But God in his love did not trash the painting. Instead, he sent Jesus, the true image of the Father, to teach us about God's design, to die for us on the cross, to rise again for us from the grave, in order that our humanity and beauty might ultimately be restored. That's the picture of the gospel. And in our passage this morning, Paul holds before us a before and after picture of our restoration in Christ. And it looks a lot better than the Ece Omo. Verses 17 through 19 describe the downward spiral of life apart from Christ, the moral deterioration that happens to us when we cut ourselves off from God. And then verses 20 through 24 show us the special obligation of our new life in Christ. So let's Look now at those two sections with the bigger picture in mind. First, verses 17 through 19, Paul describes the downward spiral, the moral deterioration of life apart from Christ. Now, Paul is about to tell us the cold, hard truth about our fallen condition. Um, some people, when hearing this, might be surprised. Others might be offended. And Paul expects this to happen, so he prefaces what he's about to say with a reminder of his God-given authority. You see those first words in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. It's what an older brother might say to a younger sibling that says, look, mom and dad are gone, but they've left me in charge, okay? So what we're about to read in here is God's truth, not Paul's opinion, 
not Drew's suggestions, not man's musings. This is God's word, and because it's God's word, it carries an incontestable authority. Not only are we to believe every promise that is given to us in this book, not only are we to enjoy every encouragement, but we're also to obey every command, even the ones that seem impossibly difficult. And what is God commanding us to do this morning? You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. We are to behave differently from the world around us. If Paul had addressed this letter not to the church of Ephesians, but to the church at Cross Point, he might have said something like, you must no longer walk as the Americans do. Now, I'm proud to be an American. I love our country. I pray for our country's peace and prosperity, and I hope you do too. We're commanded to do so in the Bible. But being an American is not the same as being a Christian. It's just not. We who are in Christ have been born again into a different kingdom and under a different Lord. And so we must no longer walk as the world does. They're going to two different destinations. They're walking according to two different moral codes. We're on two different paths. We must walk as Christians, for that is what we are. Are we Americans? Yes. But even more so, we are Christians. And with that charge, Paul begins to describe, in verses 18 and 19, the downward spiral of life apart from Christ. He lists four symptoms that our fall of, excuse me, our fallen condition. We might call them symptoms. Four symptoms of our fallen condition. Keep in mind that this is our condition before Christ or left to ourselves apart from the grace of God. So this is a picture of a distorted humanity. First, Paul tells us that apart from Christ, our hearts are hardened. Our hearts are hardened. He writes in verse 18 that the Gentiles, the non-Christians, are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Paul is informing us that deep within our fallen nature is a stubborn resistance of God. We refuse to obey him. So we're not ignorant due to lack of knowledge. We're ignorant due to hardness of heart. You might want to put the inflection on a different syllable. It's not that we're ignorant so much as we are ignorant. We're ignoring him. Uh, our two-year-old daughter, Audrey, has now begun to shut her eyes and plug her ears in response to certain commands that we give her. So she hears the word dessert just fine. It's the word broccoli or bedtime that she has a little more trouble hearing, you know. And the same hardness of heart can be found in each one of us. We suppress the truth. The Holy Spirit confronts us with the truth just as he is probably doing with each one of us this morning. He's confronting us with the truth, convicting us of our sin, and we suppress it like a child might suppress a beach ball under the water. 
We drown it. We hold it down. We ignore it. We're not as good as we think. There's no such thing as beauty on the inside apart from God's grace. There's no such thing. There's no island of righteousness. There's no speck of goodness. Apart from Christ, our hearts, the very core of our being, our hearts are hardened. Second, Paul tells us that apart from Christ, our minds are misguided. Our minds are misguided. He writes at the end of verse 17 that the Gentiles walk or live in the futility of their minds. And then in verse 18, if you look down at your Bibles again, he tells us that they are darkened in their understanding. Now, Paul is by no means, by no means, denying um, the intelligence of non-Christians or denying our intelligence before we came to Christ. He's simply saying that apart from Christ, human intelligence is misguided, like a student who stays up all night working tirelessly on the wrong project that ever happened to anybody in here. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's what you feel like saying the morning after studying for that long test that never happened. All is vanity, says the preacher of Ecclesiastes. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Isn't it interesting, by the way, how we refer to the intellectual movement that rejected religion and embraced the autonomy of human reason as the Enlightenment? The Enlightenment. The world and the university, to be sure, continually urges us to come out of the dark ages. It's 2016, they say. It's time to get on the right side of history. But let me tell you, history has been wrong before. And history has been reordered by the resurrection of Jesus Christ which is a historical fact. And we have very limited time in our lives to get on the right side of God's history. Paul assures us that whenever we shut our eyes to God's light, we walk in darkness. And I should just say that when we shut our eyes to God's light, we walk in fear. I came in here this morning at 6 a.m. to turn on the lights been in here a thousand times before. I was scared. It was dark in here. And when I turned on the lights, I realized how foolish I was. That's what it's like when we come to Christ and the lights come on when we're inspired and illuminated by his word. The psalmist says, for in your light do we see light. Third, apart from Christ, our consciences are calloused. Now, some of you grammarians are going to say, isn't that spelled with an O? And it's not. In the Bible, the, the become callous is spelled with an O, but the U does not have an O in front of it in this case. So I had to toot my own horn there. 
So our consciences are calloused apart from Christ. They have lost all moral sensitivity. It amazes me how my dog Leon can walk across hot blacktop pavement in his barefoot, right? He's calloused. His paws have been calloused. He's lost all sensitivity to pain. So Paul writes in verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Trying to satisfy a sinful desire is like trying to scratch a mosquito bite. The, The more you scratch, the deeper it itches. And the more you scratch, the more you raise the probability of doing severe damage. And this is especially true of sexual sin, what Paul calls sensuality. We are addictive creatures, and we are easily deceived by the temptations of sexual sin. It is impossible, apart from God's grace, to look at pornography once. It is impossible. Interestingly, in the Bible, it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But then it says, flee from sexual immorality. Is lust more powerful than the devil himself? Some of you know that. We might all even know that. You must run. Run away. Do not fight, but run. So this is especially true of sensuality. Dr. David reminded our youth last week that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. But despite this warning, we still fall into sin because apart from Christ, our consciences are calloused. We've lost all moral sensitivity, all ability to feel shame and embarrassment for what we've done. And finally, apart from Christ, our condemnation is certain. Those who walk in the way that Paul has just described are alienated or separated, excluded from the life of God. Imagine for a moment what it might be like to be separated from the life of God, from the life of God. Do we not sing in conclusion to our service every week, praise God from whom all blessings flow, from whom all blessings flow. You cut yourself off from that, and life is unbearable. Life is unlivable. It's not life. Yet that is the life we choose. When we cut ourselves off from God, we may think that we'd be better without him. But to separate ourselves from him, to cut ourselves off from him, is to lose the life we so desperately want in the first place. So we have in verses 17 through 19, a distorted picture of the image of God. This is what every human being is like apart from Christ. But the good news is that we've been made new. So in verses 20 through 24, Paul now begins to show 
the special obligation of our new life in Christ. Verses 20 and 21 are the hinge on which this whole passage turns. Paul writes, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. So God has given us the truth, and we've been changed. What brings about this change? Paul says we change by learning Christ. And isn't that a strange phrase? Paul does not say that we change by learning about Christ, as important as that is. No, in order to change our behavior, we must come to know Christ and enter into a personal relationship with him. And I confess I learned this the hard way. I grew up as a pastor's kid. My father's here this, here this morning. And I knew a lot more than my peers about the Bible. I had perfect Sunday school attendance. I had a great memory bank of Bible verses, many of which still remain in my mind today, and for that I'm very thankful. I participated in every retreat that was made available to me. I even stayed awake through every sermon. They were good, but I stayed awake. When I got to college, I found myself walking as the Gentiles do. You could even say at times that my heart was hardened toward God, that I was living in rebellion against Him, that I had become calloused, morally calloused in my lifestyle. And yet in my rebellion, God led me to Christ. The facts I had learned finally gave way to love. My friend David Watkins sent me a link, a link to a sermon on YouTube from Matthew chapter 7, which is about living like a Christian. And it was though, let me tell you, it was as though Jesus Christ were speaking directly to me. Minute 17, pause, go repent and get certain things done. Come back, where were we? Finish the sermon. It was as though Christ were speaking to me person to person, and he was. He was. I was no longer simply learning about Christ. I was learning Christ himself. So what's your story? When did you learn Christ? Or have you been attending Crosspoint for years and learning about Christ, but have never entered into a personal relationship with him? Never committed your life to him. Never submitted to his lordship. Is Christ speaking to you now as he spoke to me years ago? Let me assure you that he is. He is speaking to you now. His word is open. His people are gathered. His name has been invoked. He is here. And he is calling you to follow him. So unplug your ears, open your eyes, 
come to Christ and live a new life. So how is our life in Christ to be different from the life we once lived? How is it different? And in the remaining verses, Paul lists two changes that should accompany our change of heart. Or three, rather, that I have condensed into two. First, we must allow the Holy Spirit to change our minds. We must allow the Holy Spirit to change our minds. Paul writes in verse 23 that we who are in Christ are, are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Notice that Paul does not command us to renew ourselves. How could we? You've just heard how bad we were. How are you going to turn to Christ? Your heart's hardened. Your mind is misguided. Your conscience is calloused. Your condemnation is certain. How are you going to turn to Christ? He commands us, rather, to be renewed. Now, certainly there is a response that we must all give to God's initiating grace. But Christian doctrine revolves around God taking the initiative in your salvation, not you. You are a recipient. It is the Holy Spirit who changes our lives. And he begins by renewing the spirit of our minds, by changing the way we think. The Gentileness of our hearts runs deep. And whether we realize it or not, the world around us has reinforced the distorted thinking that we have accumulated and brought into this world about God's world. We've come to think of money as an idol, of education as trivial, just something to mark off the list. No formation. Test scores. That's what we want. We've come to view sex as casual with whomever I want, whenever I want. But when we enter into a personal relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit begins to change our minds about these things. He changes the way we think. He gives us a new set of spectacles through which to view the world aright. We've been walking around with broken glasses. He gives us new ones. And you and I can either help or hinder this process. We can either make a clean break from the ways of the world and follow Christ and immerse ourselves in the life of the church, making Sundays a priority, making scripture reading a priority, making prayer an aim to grow deeper and deeper into intimacy with God and not just some flimsy ritual that we do in the mornings. We can help or hinder this work, and we can do it for our children too. We can help or hinder the Spirit's renewal of our children's minds. Our children, many of our children catch the bus at six. They put their earbuds in, in which worldly advertisements and lyrics are being promoted to them. They go to school, which in many cases has become a sort of Christless environment. 
They come home at 3. They wait for mom and dad to get home till 6. They spend their time watching Hollywood. After dinner, they move up to their room. And they do their homework by listening to music again. So that their worldview is being shaped casually and not intentionally. And parents, you can help. The remote control does not belong in your child's hands. Your child is sitting in the passenger seat and does not have any jurisdiction over the radio. <laughs> Some of you are breathing a sigh of relief now. You can help or hinder this process, parents. Train up a child in the way he or she should go. And when he or she is older, will not depart from it. So the Holy Spirit changes our minds. There's another change that must occur. Not only what must we allow the Spirit to change our minds, we must also work with the Spirit or in the Spirit to change our clothes. Change our clothes. The way we behave and relate to God. Now, our entire passage this morning has been a contrast between two ways of life. In verses 22 and 24, Paul boils it all down to two statements. Put off the old self, put on the new self. So if you and I are going to live new lives, we need to dress in new clothes. Uh, kids, isn't it the best when you start a new school year and your mom buys you new shoes? It's the best. Um, you don't need third grade shoes. You need fourth grade shoes. Not seventh, I need eighth grade shoes. The old shoes simply won't do. Uh, I remember having a fashion emergency. Uh, not with my wife, but with Pastor Nick. When I first began working at Crosspoint, in 2013, I had worked for three years previously at another church serving as an intern and had formed the habit of dressing extremely casually to church events. And on the first night of equipping classes in the fall of 2013, the first lesson, uh, I came to Crosspoint to teach in an untucked, short sleeve pink Oxford shirt that had not been pressed, a pair of shorts that were actually pants that I had literally cut off into shorts, and white flip-flops. And I remember passing Nick, I knew ex I know exactly, there's like blood on the, there's like blood on the spot where this encounter happened. Right by the microwave in the kitchen, I passed Pastor Nick in the kitchen on my way to teach, and he stopped, and he, you know, we were still getting to know each other, you know, so he's being subtle and gracious, but it, so he said, a pink shirt, and I, yep, uh, shorts, you're wearing shorts, uh-huh, flip-flops. Yes. Uh, I got the picture. I looked ridiculous. I looked like an intern. I did not look like an associate pastor. 
But what makes the story so tragic and embarrassing is that I am an associate pastor. I had been given the job, the title, the office. I had been made an associate pastor. Now it's time to dress like one. And in the same way, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if we have entered into a personal relationship with Jesus, we have already been made new. We got the job. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And our baptism signifies that awesome reality. But conversion is more than just a one-time decision. It is a daily, lifelong process of shedding lust and pride and bitterness and rage and putting on the new self, which Paul says is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The early church clothed newly baptized converts in white robes after they were baptized. And it was a symbol for their new and holy life in Christ. But sooner or later, the symbol had to give way to the reality. And we who are in Christ have also been dressed in white. We have no righteousness of our own, only Christ. And while we can't wear white robes to school or to work, we can clothe ourselves with the new humanity, with true righteousness and holiness. The great reformer Martin Luther said, remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. And by God's grace, we will not only remember it, but will fulfill it as we daily put off the old self and put on the new. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your initiating grace to us sinners. We're hopelessly lost, who walked in trespasses and sins, who even were dead in them. Thank you for your mercy to us, for calling out to us, teaching us Christ, giving us Christ, and raising us up with him, seating us with him in the heavenly places, giving us new identities, new natures. We pray that we would live into those new clothes that you have bought for us with the blood of your son Christ. And we pray that even now, you will give us the grace to repent of those things which you have brought into our minds through the course of this message and would allow us to take hold again of Christ, to remember our baptism and to continue to walk in the righteousness that you have provided for us. In Jesus' name, amen.